I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we have a double feature. Later on in the program, we'll be talking to friend of the show, Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window, also the author of The War State and Why the Vietnam War. Full disclosure, Mike is a sponsor for this program to give his unique perspective on all the talk of a new Cold War with China. But first, we're going to be speaking to the great commentator and scholar on issues pertaining to the Middle East and South Asia, Professor Juan Cole of the Informed Comment blog about the long history of U.S. involvement in the Middle East and why it was never about democracy promotion, despite Claims to the contrary by the U.S. Foreign Policy Blob. I want to get right into that conversation, which, as a launching point, discusses a recent New York Times piece detailing a study that seems to indicate that U.S. allies like Saudi Arabia have contributed to the decline in democracy around the globe. So with that in mind, let's get right to it with Professor Juan Cole. Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist, Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've wanted to have on for some time now, a scholar of the Middle East and the proprietor of the Informed Comment blog, Juan Cole. How are you doing today? It's fine. Thank you. So, uh, Professor Cool, I wanted to talk about a piece that came up on Informed Comment uh, a few days ago entitled, In the Middle East, the U.S. was never about democracy promotion. And I believe that this piece is 
sort of following from a very interesting New York Times article about data showing that a lot of U.S. allies aren't really helping with keeping democracy alive abroad. Could you talk a little bit about that? Right. Well, there's this uh, contemporary problem in the past decade, decade and a half, uh, you've seen a significant retrenchment in uh, democracy around the world. Um, a Swedish study just came out that uh, uh, refers to it as, as democratic backsliding. Uh, and if it gets really bad, then it's democratic deterioration. And uh, this is a reversal of the trends that we saw in the late 20th century, where after 1974, uh, some 60 countries adopted democracy, uh, transitioned to some kind of democratic system with, you know, very basic definition of democracy that there are regular elections, there are opposition parties, you have an election, the losers go home. That's one of the big uh, uh, features of democracy, which is why what happened uh, uh, on January 6th is so concerning because the losers didn't want to go home. Uh, that That's the end of democracy if that doesn't happen. So you had a lot of uh, movement towards democracy throughout the world uh, in the late 20th century, but now in the first two decades of the 21st, you've, you've seen a reversal of these trends. Some countries that were considered uh, democratic, um, and again, in a very basic way, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily fully democratic or that um, uh, that there aren't some authoritarian characteristics of them. But Turkey or India were having regular elections, and there were, you know, a rule of law and uh, uh, limitations on what politicians could do and 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 how people were treated. And you've seen a retrenchment in, in, in those countries. Uh, and in fact, since uh, the United States' geopolitical allies had often been uh, democracies, uh, and there is now a deterioration in the democracies, so inevitably a lot of US allies are deteriorating. And in my essay, however, I, I question the premise that I'm not saying Max Fisher at the New York Times shared it, but it's a general premise you often see in think tanks and, and uh, political scientists uh, and journalists writing about the United States, that the US had a preference for democracy among its allies. And that's way too simplistic because often it did not. Well, that leads us into a lot of the sort of backstory, especially the Cold War period. You know. What was driving uh, U.S. policy uh, when it came to our allies in the Cold War period? And I think you referred to it as being driven by sort of a bifurcated policy. That's right. Well, I think there was a genuine interest in, in um, democratization uh, uh, for Europe uh, among U.S. policymakers. I mean, more or less, the United States wrote the German Constitution, uh, which has been much amended, but it's still there, uh, and uh, um, uh, sort of pressured France and Italy to take the democratic road. Uh, and uh, and on the whole, I think the thinking was, you know, the, the main strategic goal here was to counter communism. 
Uh, and the thinking was that Europe was sufficiently technologically advanced, it had the know-how to grow, and that a, a capitalist democracy with a growing economy was the best guarantee for a country not to go communist, uh, not, not to see what happened in Eastern Europe with Poland and Czechoslovakia and so forth becoming communist, not to see that happen in Western Europe. So that was the main US goal. And where it seemed to the policymakers that capitalist democracy was plausible for a place and was a good anti-communist strategy, they pursued it. But even in Europe, uh, Portugal and Spain uh, had fascist governments uh, until the 1970s, and they were supported to the hilt by the United States. And there's no evidence that the U.S. did anything serious to move them towards democracy. And I think the calculus was that among European states, they were quite poor, uh, more agrarian and rural, uh, and that maybe they couldn't make a go of it as a capitalist democracy that was consistently growing. And so moving them off of fascism might make an opening for the left that the United States didn't want to see. Uh, so even in Europe, I think there was a two-pronged strategy. And then when you come to the Middle East, uh, I think the United States was anti-democratic. Uh, I think a, con a conviction grew up among U.S. policymakers uh, that the Middle Easterners couldn't be trusted with democracy, and that if they were democratic, the left might well come to power. Uh, and uh, so they uh, um, they often backed coups, as in Iran in, in 1953. And Operation Ajax um, and that whole uh, deal, the the oil coup. That's right. Well, one of the things that was going on was that the Iranians had a nationalist movement. And in the old days, the government had made a deal with Britain that favored the BP and the British really strongly for the profits of oil. And so they nationalized their petroleum uh, when BP and the British wouldn't renegotiate that 1933 deal. And that ticked off the United States and it put a, an international boycott on Iranian petroleum, pressured Italy and Japan not to buy it. But they, it was also a fear of communism because they, in Washington, uh, the Eisenhower administration and the Dulles brothers tagged oil nationalization as a leftist project. And they saw the, 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 the leader of Iran at the time, Mohammad Mossadegh, as a pinko in the parlance of the 50s as, as tilting uh, towards the left which is not true. I mean, they completely misread the situation. He was an old aristocrat, uh, but a nationalist. And then he let communists into his political coalition, which was a no-no in the Cold War. So if the U.S. had a choice between backing a democracy that was making democratic demands on the distribution of oil profits uh, and uh, and and allowing the communist movement to be part of the political scene, or a dictatorship that would back Washington to the hilt on all of these issues and would crush the communists and would pump as much oil as the U.S. wanted, and so forth. And they gleefully chose the latter and installed uh, the Shah uh, as a uh, uh, capitalist dictator. I like how you mentioned. Uh 
earlier in the article, before you get to uh, the Shah of Iran um, and that whole deal, uh, you mentioned that some very unsavory leaders like uh, Franco, uh, despite his cooperation with Hitler, were sort of given a pass because they were so staunchly anti-Moscow. Could you talk a little bit about the role of anti-communism in U.S. foreign policy? Yes, well, thank you. That's my main point, is that the policy was anti-communism, and democracy was a, a, a subsidiary consideration. If they thought that democracy would end up being anti-communist, then they pr promoted it. If they thought not, then they went for dictatorship. And we saw with the only virtue that Franco had from Washington's point of view was that uh, after he won the Spanish Civil War uh, in, in, in 1939, he massacred the communists and, and chased the ones he didn't kill out of the country, uh, including Picasso, by the way. Uh, and uh, uh, this was, you know, a kind of genocide of the left in, in uh, post-war uh, Spain. And uh, he did uh, cooperate with Hitler. Uh, in fact, Picasso's famous um, painting, Guernica, is of a Spanish town that was bombed by the German Air Force. Uh, uh, so um, uh, the U.S. doesn't seem to have minded uh, uh, that dirty past of Franco's, uh, as long as in the post-1945 period, when the fascist threat seems to have, seemed to have been taken care of, uh, as long as he was staunchly anti-communist, the U.S. was perfectly willing to have full military cooperation with him and, and uh, uh, full diplomatic uh, relations and, and uh, treat him as a, as a kind of ally. So... I think the way you sum it up in the article, you say oil absolutism and anti-communism in the Middle East, capitalist democracy in Europe, that was the bifurcated U.S. policy. Uh, could you describe in more detail? I mean, I think we sort of understand the oil element, uh, but also absolutism. And we really, I think, covered the anti-communism element fully there. Yeah. Well, oil is another issue because in order to have uh, growing capitalist democracies uh, in France and Germany and Italy uh, and, uh, and Britain, uh, they needed cheap energy. And uh, they often had cheap energy in the form of coal uh, in Europe, uh, but they did not have petroleum for transportation. Petroleum is, oil is mainly used for moving vehicles. There, there is some, uh, generation of electricity with it, but it's expensive for that purpose and it's, it's, it's rare. Uh, mostly it's used to move for transportation, to move things around and people around. And Europe had none uh, or very little. Uh, and so the, the, the grand strategy of the United States was not only to uh, foster democratic or capitalist democracy in these countries, of Western Europe, but also to make sure they had access to inexpensive petroleum. The inexpensive petroleum is coming from the Middle East. Uh, so it's uh, Saudi Arabia and, and other petroleum producers in the region. And, um, and that was another reason that the U.S. didn't push democracy in the, in the area, is that they wanted to make sure that there was a, a local 
potentate that they had their thumb on who would do what they wanted and get the oil out cheaply to the European allies. U.S. didn't need the petroleum itself. It had its own uh, vast reserves in Texas and Louisiana and so forth, but it, it wanted the petroleum for Europe. Uh, and so uh, the Eisenhower administration thought that Saudi Arabia should be the leader of the Middle East. Uh, they, they promoted the Saudi kings as the natural leaders of the region. Anti-communists produced oil for the for the West. You know what? What better? Uh, what, what what more could you want? Um, and they didn't realize that the Saudis weren't actually very popular in the Middle East. Uh, uh, and where? And then they wanted to make pipelines to make sure the oil could get to Europe. And and the U.S. backed a pipeline from Saudi Arabia through Syria uh, to the Mediterranean coast in in, in Lebanon. Uh, when Syria seemed as though it would try to block that pipeline. There was a coup, and a more pliable Syrian leader came to power. It is alleged that the U.S. Uh, was uh, in part behind that coup uh, in the late 40s. Uh, and then there were lots of coups in Syria. Syria became unstable after that. And then in 1958, when uh, the monarchy in Iraq was overthrown, um, and, and uh, colonels came to power, uh, there was fear in Washington that this would spread to uh, Lebanon uh, and um, the kind of Lebanon would be caught up in Arab nationalism, which tilted towards Moscow. And so the U.S. actually invaded Lebanon. Uh, and it was in part to secure the oil refinery, which, which was on the Mediterranean, which was the other side of the pipeline. Uh, so uh, uh, the um, the oil coming from uh, from Iraq. So th this is a, a you know a, a real driver of U.S. policy in the Middle East. And I want to tell you, democracy has nothing to do with it. And I just want to go back to that uh, second part. So we've got oil and anti-communism. With absolutism, you're referring to. You know, for instance, Eisenhower's willingness to work with nationalists like uh, in Egypt or the Algerian FLN, as long as they oppose communism. Yes, uh, I, I read Eisenhower as as having a two prong approach. Uh, if there was a nationalist movement which was anti colonial, he understood that, uh, and he didn't think badly of it. Uh, and uh, and so, as long as that anti-colonial movement looked as though it might result in a government that would be anti-communist, he was fine with it. Uh, and that and he he also seemed to have had a theory that if the old colonial powers uh, like Britain and the United States and and, uh, and and the Netherlands and so forth tried to hold on to their colonies in, in Afro-Asia too long, then they would push these nationalists into the arms of the communists. And I think that's, he thought that's what happened, you know, in Vietnam. Uh, and he didn't want to see the same thing happen in Algeria. So he twisted the, the arms of the French to let Algeria go. It was one of the reasons Algeria became independent in 1962, was strong American pressure on de Gaulle. And then uh, uh, he 
was furious when the French and the British and the Israelis invaded Egypt in 1956, uh, trying to take ownership of the Suez Canal away from Egypt, and Egypt had nationalized it the previous summer, uh, because he was afraid that this would push uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser into the arms of the communists, and he was prescient, because I think it did. Um, so, uh, so he made Israel, France, and Britain withdraw from Egypt, and he threatened to withdraw American loans from them and crash their economies. Uh, they were much beholden to the United States at the, at the time, uh, if they didn't get right back out of Egypt. Uh, so, um, but then if a, if a movement went communist, as the Vietnamese did, Eisenhower wanted to crush them. So in the late 50s, he seems to have offered the French the use of a, an atomic bomb if they wanted to use it against Ho Chi Minh. Uh, and uh, I think there's this, Eisenhower is a double-edged sword. He's all for national liberation from colonialism as long as it's relatively bourgeois, as long as, long as it's uh, uh, going to be for the business classes and, and, and anti-communist. So I think that really handles the Cold War period. I, th I think a lot of the moves as we've discussed them that were made uh, by the U.S. policy-wise were, I don't know if cynical's the, the right word or if people would say that's too harsh, but ultimately it was about political economy and countering the, the Soviet Union. That's what um, U.S. foreign policy was largely about, um, as well as oil. And I just wanted to get into what happens after the Cold War and uh, the September 11th attacks. Do we see residuals from Cold War uh, U.S. foreign policy? Is there a little bit of a change? What what goes on after that Cold War period? Well, of course, after the, the uh, collapse of the uh, Soviet Union in uh, uh, 1991, uh, anti-communism recedes dramatically as a concern in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and um, and I think in the 90s, the Clinton administration wasn't terribly interested in foreign policy uh, abroad and uh, didn't, didn't innovate in any significant way. Uh, but uh, with 9-11 and the launching by the Bush administration of what it called a war on terror, which went on to mean several actual conventional wars, uh, which turned into guerrilla wars, uh, as well as counterinsurgency and counterterrorism, uh, operations throughout the world uh, for a good 20 years, we may be finally seeing a, 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 a drawing to the end of that era. Uh, during this period, the old arguments about uh, a, a pro-American dictator being better than democracy reemerged. Uh, and so now the dictators were valued not because they were anti-communist, uh, but because they were against Muslim fundamentalism of a radical sort. Uh, and so, and, and all of the dictators in the Middle East stood up and, and, and raised their hand volunteering to crush Al-Qaeda and anything like Al-Qaeda and, and even just ordinary everyday Muslim fundamentalism that wasn't violent uh, if only uh, they could get some aid from the United States and France and Britain uh, for the purpose. I, I also think, wanted to talk about that real quick, if you could. This has had ramifications, this war on terror, 
even outside of the Middle East. And you mentioned France. I mean, there's been sort of an illiberal turn in France, a lot of anti-Islam sentiment, uh, Islamophobia. And would you say that's sort of connected to U.S. policy and, and how it relates to its allies during the war on terror? Well, ironically enough, the French uh, tried to counter Bush's war on terror. They didn't think it was a good idea. Jacques Chirac did not think it was a good idea early in the process. Uh, but the uh, 2015 uh, ISIL attacks on, on Paris, uh, uh, including the attack on uh, the um, the humorist magazine uh, Charlie Hebdo, and then the attacks on, on French uh, facilities and restaurants and so forth, uh, well, along with another a number of other such attacks, um, a, a truck driver mowing down people in Lyon and so forth, um, made the French government of the time and after feel uh, that the very substantial number of uh, French Muslims who are, if you count people on the ground and not just people who have gotten citizenship, maybe 8% of the population, um, that they are a, a potential fifth column and uh, that they need to be surve surveilled and monitored and cells broken up and, and that nothing like what happened in 2015 should ever be allowed to happen again, which would mean uh, abrogating the rights of man of 1789. And, uh, and you know, they, the French had some of the equivalents of the U.S. Bill of Rights, uh, restrictions on police just barging into people's homes and so forth. Those restrictions have largely been lifted. Uh, and so there's a sense in which France is no longer a functioning democracy. So then before we wrap up, it, it sounds like with the war on terror, U.S. foreign policy, as you put it in the article, depends on who the enemy is. And in the Cold War, it's the communist Soviets. And with the war on terror, it's uh, this, you know, idea of uh, the Muslim fundamentalists. Or I, I think in some cases, you know, there was just blatant Islamophobia. It wasn't even about, uh, you know, fundamentalists. It was just an all out attack on uh, Muslims. I, I, you know, there was a lot of Islamophobia then. What were some of the, the best examples of the U.S. not supporting um, democracy uh, during this sort of war on terror period? Well, one of the more egregious uh, examples is uh, in Egypt, in, uh, when, when the Arab Spring revolts broke out, initially the Obama administration was not sympathetic to them. Uh, and uh, only when it seemed certain that Hosni Mubarak, the dictator, would be uh, moved out of office, uh, did, did President Obama finally intervene to urge him to go. Uh, and then in, 20, in the summer of 2013, when the Egyptian military made a coup against the elected Muslim Brotherhood government, so that the fundamentalists had come to power in Egypt on the, backs of, uh, on the back of this uh, revolt, uh, but had come to power at the ballot box. Um, when the military overthrew the elected Muslim Brotherhood government and jailed the president, uh, who ultimately died in jail, um, the U.S. by law uh, has to cut off aid to a military regime. 
uh, that comes to power that way. And so the Obama administration announced uh, an end to U.S. aid uh, late summer of 2013. But in the meantime, uh, the general who led this coup, uh, General Abdel Fattah Assisi, uh, took off his uniform, uh, ran for president in 2014 uh, in a phony election that, that he won 90-some percent of the vote. Uh, and then the U.S. aid is sent out in uh, late, late spring. So by the time that the U.S. aid was up for renewal, and it's a billion and a half a year, uh, Sisi was a civilian president, uh, supposedly, uh, and they reinitiated sending the aid. So it was cut off during the months when they weren't sending aid anyway, and it was restored uh, uh, for its regular schedule on the basis of a, of a phony uh, election that put a fig leaf on a military junta. Uh, and uh, so that seems to me quite egregious. There were no consequences to General Assisi for making a coup against the elected government. And he seems to be making himself into a dictator for life. And the U.S. is fine with that. And, and they're giving him all kinds of help and aid. Uh, and, and in part, of course, Egypt is astride the Suez Canal through which 10% of the world's trade goes, including, uh, I think, 8% of uh, world petroleum. Uh, and Egypt has a peace treaty with Israel. And the Israel issue is very uh, dear to American politicians. So between the two, uh, and, and, and Egypt is uh, under Sisi is, uh, I would say maybe Islamophobic. Uh, you know, if you so much as walk around Cairo now with a, with a beard, uh, people interpret it as a sign of Muslim fundamentalism and throw stones at you. Uh, so uh, uh, the government has destroyed the Muslim Brotherhood, which had been, you know, like a, it had emerged as a normal political party and and one majority in, in parliament and won the presidency in 2012, uh, it has destroyed that party. Uh, and, and there's a, a, a draconian military uh, rule with secret police and no protest allowed and so forth. And the U.S. is fine with this. In fact, it, it, it seems to be backing it. And I mean, uh, what I find interesting, too, is people forget, and I'm glad you mentioned it in the article, that, you know, e even with Iraq, I mean, uh, the Bush administration would say we want democratization, but they were actually trying to install someone like um, Chalabi as a strongman there. So, I mean, e even with Iraq, there seems to have been not as much consideration for democracy until they really were sort of forced uh, into doing a few things like have the one person, one totally vote in elections. Go on. Yeah, they, they actively resisted having a one person, one vote open elections. The Bush administration did, and they were forced into it by mass rallies uh, organized by Grand Ayatollah Sistani. So it was the, the Iranian-born Ayatollah who wanted democracy, uh, not Washington. Now, before we wrap up here, uh, the, the last thing I wanted to get into, and this is important to me, is, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, Saudi Arabia now, um, especially after the death of Jamal Khashoggi. And a lot of this article deals with um, Saudi Arabia. So is it all oil policy uh, when it comes to our relationship with Saudi Arabia? What is going on there? 
Well, most of it is oil. I mean, I, Saudi Arabia is a, a small country with, I don't know, 23 million citizens. Uh, uh, it's uh, not a large place. And, you know, we don't see, hear so much in the U.S. press about uh, lots of other countries, Thailand, Senegal, not, not on our radar. So why, is, why do the Saudis loom so large? It's because they are a swing producer and they produce on the order of 10% uh, of the world's petroleum on a daily basis. Uh, and if, and, and when the market is tight, the prices are high as they are now, if the Saudis decided to produce a million barrels a day less, the prices would, would skyrocket even more than they have. Uh, and so everybody's dependent uh, on Saudi Arabia as a swing producer, uh, gives, gives it enormous power. And moreover, because uh, of, of the lucrative character of their petroleum industry, they can produce a barrel of petroleum for, for $2. Uh, uh, and I mean, it, it, it can sell for 70. Uh, so they've built up billions and billions, in fact, trillions in various kinds of reserves. They have reserves, they have a, a, a sovereign wealth fund they're the richest Croesus, and they can spread this money around to influence politics. Uh, and American companies flock to Saudi Arabia to do business there and, and, and make profits. Uh, and Saudi Arabia is reliable if Washington calls up the king and says, well, look, so-and-so country is making trouble for us. Couldn't you please bribe their politicians to be nice? Uh, he'll do it. Uh, and the Saudis and the UA, the United Arab Emirates, both oil states, both close to US allies, have emerged as the major counter-democratic forces in the region. Uh, so a lot of people think that the coup in Tunisia recently against the democratic government that was installed by the Arab Spring uh, was backed by uh, uh, these Gulf monarchies. Uh, and um, uh, they've tried to intervene in the Sudan uh, and uh, elsewhere in the region, wherever there seems to be movement towards democracy, uh, these rich oil states try to crush it. And the United States is hand in glove with them on the whole and by and large. What do you make out of curiosity about, I've heard people saying that there's going to be more discussion of Saudi Arabia because of the increase in gas prices, and there's going to be more talk of OPEC. What do you make of all that discussion that's happening right now? Well, you know, the the, the concentration in the United States on OPEC is is overblown. Uh, OPEC is a is a cartel, and it does try to affect petroleum prices, but only 22 percent of petroleum producers even belong to it, uh, and so it, it can really only affect things at the margins. Uh, and the U.S. made its peace with OPEC a long time ago. Uh, and as, a, as an oil state itself, especially after fracking brought the oil industry back. So you can, you can see that Biden just released uh, 50 million barrels from the U.S. reserves, which has had an immediate effect on international prices. So the U.S. can offset OPEC. Um, I think there is concentration on Saudi Arabia, not only because of, of being a, a swing oil producer, uh, but, you know, it used to be somewhat uh, timid or it acted behind the scenes. It was quiet uh, with the advent of King Salman and his son, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, 
they've become splashier and they're kind of uh, strutting the world stage and they're acting out. So they kidnapped the prime minister of, of Lebanon and tried to make him resign at one point. And they uh, uh, they they murdered uh, the, the Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi and the and the con Saudi consulate in in uh, Istanbul, uh, and uh, they they become a rogue state uh, in this way, and it's an embarrassment to the United States because they the Saudis are a pillar of U.S. policy in the region. Uh, when Trump was president, he did what he could to make the various Saudi scandals go away. And, you know, the U.S. president is very powerful in that regard. If he just won't say anything about something and his administration won't comment, uh, the, the news stories gradually go away because most news stories, you know, journalists, some journalists are, are somewhat lazy and they, 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 they just call administration officials for a, for a headline and they couldn't get any headlines about Khashoggi because Jared Kushner and Trump just made it go away. So um, Biden has been harder on the Saudis in rhetoric, uh, but in in actual action, uh, he hasn't done much to them. He stopped actively cooperating with their war on Little Yemen, uh, but he's willing to sell them the weapons that they use in Yemen and uh, and just made a big arms deal with them. Do you think, though, that there may be concern on the Saudi end or on the U.S. end when it comes to the relationship between the two countries as Biden sort of sets his sights on, on China? Like, will that affect Saudi Arabia or the U.S. or its relationship, the relationship between the two anyway, um, if we finally, you know, as you put it, leave the Middle East alone? Right. Well, uh, there's a lot of thinking in Washington and in the, in the light of what's happened in the past 20 years that the Middle East isn't actually a fruitful place to put one's money and energy. It's difficult to see in what way the United States benefited from its wars uh, in the region. Uh, and indeed, an argument could be made that it, those wars contributed to a downfall of the United States. Uh, uh, and um, uh, the, the expense of them uh, and the creation of an entire class of, of uh, disgruntled veterans, uh, all of these things uh, have, have had a negative effect on the United States. So people in Washington are saying, well, you know, a pure power that we could go mano a mano with and make policy that mattered would be a country like China, which is emerging, which has a big GDP, which, which has a, a substantial military and of which Japan and South Korea and the Philippines are afraid. So we could step in and, and offer ourselves as protectors against China, and uh, we could make policy and trade and diplomacy uh, and military moves on that basis, and it would be fruitful for us. Uh, we'd increase our Pacific Rim uh, economy and, uh, and trade, and, uh, and it would matter. Uh, what we did in the Middle East had no beneficial effect. So that's the thinking, and the Saudis know it. And they're afraid uh, that they'll be uh, abandoned. And of course, now with uh, the prospect of uh, the Build Back Better bill perhaps passing, um, uh, and already in the infrastructure bill that did pass, uh, President Biden uh, promoted a vast expansion of uh, electric vehicles, uh, putting in the government-backed infrastructure for recharging. Uh, and. Um, uh, and a goal that, that half of all new vehicles sold in the United States in 2030 be electric. Uh, 
that's a death knell for the Saudi economy. They're almost 100% dependent on petroleum. And petroleum is not going to be worth much down the road. So they're aware the U.S. is abandoning them diplomatically, abandoning them economically, and trying to bring Iran in from the cold, which the Saudis really didn't want. Uh, and so uh, I think the Saudis are kind of frantic. They're reaching out to Iran and trying to make their own deal with it. Uh, and, and I think they will swing towards India and China uh, uh, as the U.S. alliance be, maybe becomes less important. Last question. I just wanted to uh, pick your brain on this because I was I was interested. Um, do you think there's anything um, that people in the U.S., especially journalists, uh, may get wrong about um, Saudi Arabia? Because I know you've spoken about or written about the claims of connections between uh, Saudi Arabia and 9-11, and you're very skeptical of that, as far as I can tell. I've covered that myself, but I, I wanted to get your take. Do you think there's times where we overshoot on the criticism of Saudi Arabia? Right. Well, of course, to some extent, the Saudis uh, are uh, victims of Islamophobia in public, U.S. public policy, as of the fact that they're they're Muslims and uh, um, is is um, used against them, and and of course that's not fair. Uh, the question is, how do they behave, uh, not who they are. And um, uh, so, yes, I, I think, you know, trying to connect them to Al-Qaeda is, is crazy. Um, they, uh, Al-Qaeda was trying to overthrow them, and uh, they saw it as a deadly enemy and mobilized between 2003 and 2006. There was a kind of civil war in Saudi Arabia, in which the government was trying to destroy Al-Qaeda cells, and it rounded up a lot of Muslim clerics and sent them to re-education camps, essentially, uh, to get them away from uh, this kind of radical uh, Muslim fundamentalism. Uh, so um, yes, uh, there were people hanging around the Saudi embassy who maybe had links to some of the hijackers, but Saudi Arabia uh, is, is, not, is not that large a country and expatriates hang out with each other and everybody stops by the embassy and so forth. So some of these um, FBI investigations that threw up those kinds of links don't really lead to any policymaker in the Saudi government. They lead to hangers on of the Saudi government. The Saudi government is, is extremely wealthy, has lots of hangers on. Uh, but my, I always tell people that uh, I, I was invested in U.S. stocks at 9-11, and I don't want to remember how bad it was for my portfolio. Uh, I don't, uh, I mean, that, that's a, a minor consideration compared to the loss of life and, uh, and what was done to our country. But nevertheless, uh, I think a lot of people uh, in a younger generation don't realize that this was a hit economically uh, to a lot of uh, uh, people who were uh, invested in, in Wall Street, and it's predictable that it would be. Uh, so the Saudis are very heavily invested in Wall Street, and more so probably than it looks on the surface, because there are a lot of uh, sort of holding companies that are connected to them that don't show up in the statistics. So that the Saudi government should want to destroy its own investment portfolio on Wall Street 
is completely crazy. I mean, that makes no sense at all. And it's one of the things that's wrong with with uh, Michael Moore's film on all this is that he makes a big deal of how heavily invested the Saudis are in the in stock market, but then also hints around that they were somehow connected to 9-11. Uh, well, I mean, they're not that irrational that they would do that to themselves. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add to that because I've, I've interviewed um, Mark Rosini, who uh, was working for the FBI and was within the CIA's bin Laden unit while working for the FBI. And even he said to me that, you know, he, he thinks there was things going on with Omar al-Bayoumi and you may disagree with that, but what, what was interesting was he was very adamant in saying, you know, the Saudis didn't want 9-11 to happen. They didn't make it happen. And I, I think people should keep that in mind when they discuss these things, because not everything is a, a simple conspiracy. That's right. Well, and uh, uh, the other thing to say is that um, there's a lot of money to be made by linking the Saudis to 9-11, because there are a lot of people who would have claims uh, against the Saudis if, if such a link were acknowledged. And so some of the drumbeat about this uh, is is disingenuous. I mean, I think it's really coming from a, a place of greed. Uh, rather than a, a concern with truth, and uh, uh, you know, if if I if I getting my details right, again, Omar Al Bayoumi was not a official of the Saudi government, uh, so didn't really have a uh, an institutional position. Somebody who stopped in at the embassy and and, and so forth. So, so sure, I, I mean those FBI documents that I've seen. I don't doubt what they say, although, of course, they're dealing with people who don't speak English and um, they may be misinterpreting things sometimes. But, you know, those hijackers who were in San Diego were were characterized in the local Muslim community as, as students. Uh, they were from Saudi Arabia. They didn't speak English. People did charity for them uh, and uh, uh, maybe Bayoumi amongst them. Uh, and they didn't necessarily, they didn't, we don't know that they knew they were Al-Qaeda. You see, they were covert. They were, they were a sleeper cell. Uh, so a lot of people got taken in by them. Uh, and it's entirely possible that somebody in the Saudi embassy would send them a little money. You know, there are 100,000 students uh, from Saudi Arabia and the United States, and all of them are supported by the Saudi government. And, and sometimes they have personal relationships with the embassy. So anyway, I think in the aftermath of the attack, some of those interactions look a lot more suspicious than they uh, than, the, than the reality. Is it possible that those things could have been um, like like if there was someone at the embassy that gave money? Is it possible that that was just something embarrassing that happened, and may, maybe you know, uh, maybe it's just an embarrassing incident that you know uh, maybe Saudis wouldn't want to come to light, uh, not in a conspiratorial way, but just being embarrassed by uh, something like that happening. Sure. Well, after 9-11 happened, then uh, any any interaction that the embassy staff had with any of the hijackers would have been very suspicious and uh, a matter of national shame. Uh, but, you know, the, let's remember where the blame lies. The CIA had busted those guys. They knew they were al-Qaeda. And they they had met at a conference uh, of Al Qaeda in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. The Malaysia Terror Summit, yeah. And they were 
under surveillance. We have video. So somebody was videoing them for the CIA uh, there. And then they slipped into San Diego, uh, these two guys, and uh, from Kuala Lumpur. And the CIA didn't hand them over to the FBI. So it was the Americans who knew, or at least part of the American government, who knew they were al-Qaeda. We don't know that the Saudi embassy knew that. Uh, so where does the blame really lie here? Well, I want to thank you again, um, Professor Juan Cool, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with your work? Thank you so much. And how can my listeners keep up with uh, your work? Um, Oh, uh, well, uh, it's an uh, informed comment uh, is the blog. Uh, it's uh, J-U-A-N-C-O-L-E dot com. But if you Google my name, Juan Cole, J-U-A-N-C-O-L-E, or you Google informed comment, it'll come right up to the top of the search. Uh, and I, I do a lot of essays every week, uh, and uh, I try to keep my eye on contemporary Middle East politics, U.S. foreign policy towards the Middle East. And because of my interest in uh, energy markets coming out of being a Middle East uh, expert, I also uh, devote a lot of uh, space to uh, energy and climate. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. Before we continue our conversation on this edition of Parallax Views, I want to notify California listeners of the program about one of our sponsors, the therapy practice of Alexander Yu. Yu is an experienced teletherapist since 2008. And he goes by the motto, flow, adapt, change, as Lao Tzu would say. And he wants to accompany you on your journey of self-improvement. Now, again, this applies to California listeners of the program. Alexander is a licensed psychotherapist and teletherapist. And if you'd like his services, then please contact him at Alexander U. That's Alexander U. Y. O. O. Dot com. And he can be reached by email at therapy at alexanderu.com or by phone at 323-834-9828. That's 323-834-9828. This is only available once again to my California listeners, but if you need anything related to therapy needs, please be sure to contact our sponsor, Alexander Yu. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Juan Cole of the Informed Comment blog. Now we're shifting our attention to the... Rumors of a new Cold War with China, and we're talking to returning guest and a sponsor of the show, Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window, also the author of Why the Vietnam War and the War State, about his unique perspective on this subject. In particular, we're going to be talking about his recent Wall Street Window piece entitled 
Biden administration has told China it needs a play Cold War, but doesn't want a real one. This is a rather brisk conversation, but very thoughtful. It's about 25 minutes long, and I want to get right to it. So without further ado, my conversation with Mike Swanson of The Wall Street Window. Welcome back to Parallax News, one of my favorite guests. Need to have him on more often. Also a sponsor for the show, Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Great to talk with you today. So, Mike, I wanted to have you back on because uh, you've written a lot about the history of the military-industrial complex, uh, including the books, uh, Why the Vietnam War, and The War State. And recently, you penned a piece at Wall Street Window from November 19th, uh, entitled, Biden administration has told China it needs a play Cold War, but doesn't want a real one. Uh, that is a spicy headline. Uh, could you tell me a little bit more about uh, what the Biden administration has said uh, to China, where, where you're getting this from? Yeah, it's actually, uh, I got this from the New York Times, and it's one of the most interesting articles I've read about foreign policy uh, in that newspaper, maybe ever. Um, it, it could be an article sort of as important as, say, the George Kennan telegram that helped set up the Cold War. Uh, but we set it up first by saying that um, the circumstances of the article are, are really important. Um and at the a week or two before it came out, there is another article in the New York Times right on the front page, and I almost took a picture of it to save it because uh, it was very provocative. It was about Taiwan. It said the headline was something like China doing overflights over Taiwan, and just the picture and the headline, it made it look as if you know to me like wow, you know they're really ramping up. Uh, this is a real crisis uh, in, in, in this newspaper. And a month before that, Biden announced that he was entering an alliance with Australia and England uh, to build a nuclear submarine fleet. Uh, the U.S. and England are going to build these subs for Australia. And they had a deal with France and, and, and got out of it to get these nuclear subs. The, other, the French subs weren't going to be nuclear or as advanced. And this is an escalation, uh, or, or viewed as such by China, you know, to have nuclear subs instead of more con conventional ones. And in fact, uh, the consortium news ran a story. I don't remember who wrote it, but it was asserting that this is, uh, the start of a new cold war. This, this event of, of the submarine pact. It's certainly, uh, the, you know, the potential. Uh, to create an arms race, uh, a naval arms race, and maybe even a nuclear arms race. But the U.S. has said they're not going to put nuclear missiles or, or make nuclear missile armed subs. So that and that, and this is submarine story, something I'm following really closely because I live in a state, Virginia, where this submarine deal. Uh, looks like it's going to have a huge impact on the economy. Um, there's a huge shipyard in, in the Norfolk uh, area that's going to 
get a lot of, you know, jobs. And even where I live, there's talk there might be, uh, a subsidiary operation with a thousand or more people working there. So that's how, you know, economically these type of things do have a big impact inside the United States. But real, real quick. So the, yeah. the New York Times article that, um, you sort of were uh, going off of, was that the, um, the, I think it was something like, uh, Washington hears echoes of the fifties and worries. Is this a cold war with China? Is that the article? Yeah, that, that's it. And it was done, published on October the 17th, actually says updated the 16th. Uh, but it came out October the, October the uh, 17th. Um, but one, one other point I think is important to make is, it appears to me, you know, I, I do, I read the Times and the Post and the Wall Street Journal. Um, and it appears to me that at least since Trump became president, that the level of communications between the United States and China uh, is very low. Like, I don't well, yeah, think I mean, they know. I mean, what? Trump declared essentially a trade war against them. Yeah. Well, when he when he first got in, um, the Chinese were not I mean, this is from these publications. The Chinese were not sure what Trump wanted. They weren't certain he wanted to do a trade war. They they, they thought maybe they could work with Trump. And for a short period of time, they were trying to make an outreach to Kushner and Ivanka Trump to, like, communicate with them to get the, the – to their father, and they're even in the Chinese media pumping them up like they're some wonder people, right? So, you know, making Ivanka, Ivanka Trump some almost pseudo celebrity in their media for a couple of weeks. And then, of course, as you mentioned, they had the trade war. But there was a lot of reporting that the Chinese were confused. They don't understand what the U.S. even wants in this trade war. Um, and, and now, and then, of course, there was also uh, reporting by Bob Woodward and others that. In the last couple months of the, or during about the time of the, uh, the election, that the Chinese were so concerned, uh, about the growing tensions that they were worried that maybe the United States might attack them. No, I, I mean, you yeah, think, you, you had, uh, just because you mentioned it in the article, I mean, you had Trump going around using, you know, oh, it's the China virus. And I mean, there was a lot of, uh, banging the drum, so to speak. I mean, I even heard people, when the COVID pandemic first started saying we should attack China. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty, pretty wild. And, and then of course the COVID thing does the COVID crisis, you know, it does slow down international travel and contacts anyway in, in itself. So I, what, what I, my interpretation of this New York times article is that it's a communication to China just as much as it is to us. To, to the reader in the, in the United States uh, as a way to tamp down the tensions that have been building and also to try to explain to them, I think, what the United States actually wants. And and that's what, what I got that provocative headline. They, they want to play Cold War, but, but not a, a real one. And what they say, they almost monitor – well, let me, I'll get you a quote here. Um, first of all, the, the, the article quotes various uh, figures in the Biden administration on national security state in the National Security Council, uh, this top advisor, people in the State Department. 
uh, and so forth that uses them as sources. And it makes the point that we're not going to be able to have a real Cold War because not like, at least not like what happened immediately after World War II, because during that Cold War, the, the United States and the Soviet Union in the Warsaw Pact had their own two separate trading blocks and we're essentially blockading each other. And we're not obviously not doing that today. And the article says we can't even do that if we wanted to because the global economy and everything is so much more integrated today. And even if we did say blockade China, you know, what are we going to do? Blockade Korea and, you know, every other country they trade with doesn't, that's a whole nother subject of why these <laughs> trade, trade blockades and tariffs and stuff are difficult to do, but. On the other hand of that, I mean, e- even a hot war with China, I think, you know, I thought it was very telling, uh, that you had Philip Selikow at the CFR, uh, co-authoring a report for the CFR entitled The United States, China, and Taiwan. Um, and that's called, the subtitle was A Strategy to Prevent War. And I mean, Zelikow, and I think he's not the only one in uh, the sort of circles of the Washingtonians uh, that is saying, you know, the U.S. can't afford a, a war with China. And I, you know what? I, I think that would probably include a Cold War as well. Well, I, I, I'll say on top of that, of course, I've never seen this, but uh, Colonel Larry Wilkerson, who used to. Uh, I think you've interviewed him. Um, I, I need to get uh, uh, Wilkerson on again. He's great. But I've seen him. Maybe it was with you or, or, or someone else. But uh, in the past, say that the Pentagon has war gamed. Um, what would happen if China invaded Taiwan? And we tried to resist it, and he says the result every time is uh, heavy naval casualties, and both sides. Then sit there and what's, do they launch nuclear missiles? It's like they get to that point. So uh, it doesn't sound like they have a strat, anyone, either side has a way to, or the United States at least doesn't have a, a way to easily turn this into a victory. So I don't think any, I hopefully no one would want it. I, I think it was interesting too. I mean, you had, uh, you know, Biden saying a few weeks ago, as you point out in this piece that you wrote, uh, that, you know, he was prepared to defend Taiwan by sending American soldiers there if necessary. And then China looks at that and it's like, well, that's a pretty provocative thing to say, isn't it now, Joe Biden? And then what happens? Uh, Biden walks back uh, that statement and says, oh, I misspoke. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was that happened after the time story, too. So and, and then there is a statement uh, last week. Uh, I think it was Monday, where he, or Sunday last, some two Sundays ago. Is, is or, this uh, Jacob Sullivan, the National yeah, Security yeah. Advisor? I want to talk about that. Yeah. Okay, but he said on television, the goal here is not containment. It's not a new Cold War. It is rather a fable disposition in which the U.S. and its allies can change the international rules of the road on the sorts of issues that are fundamentally going to matter to the people of our country and the people everywhere. And I don't really know. <laughs> what he means you know what what does he want to do differently than we're not doing now i don't i don't you know i don't know where well, he's one, one big thing that i think biden administration officials and and sullivan himself 
you know, uh, Biden has been saying what we want is uh, competition with China. We're going to compete with you, China. Uh, but, you know, we'll work together when it comes to climate change. And you have uh, Sullivan, I think, even directly said we want peaceful competition. So, uh, you know, we have to look at what all these signals sort of mean. Yeah, for sure. Now, to me, the thing that was really fascinating in the in the New York Times piece, and it was written by David Sanger, um, is he gives an explanation of why the United States doesn't want a Cold War but does want increased tensions, which <laughs> is pretty interesting. So he has – this is him writing. He's not quoting somewhere else. But he says one of the few issues that overrides partisan divides in Congress is the specter of Chinese competition in such crucial areas as semiconductors, artificial intelligence, quantum computing. That is how the China bill passed the Senate in a solidly bipartisan vote. And then he said – so first – so he's basically saying China is the only issue – or being scared of China or tensions with China or stopping China is the only issue uniting both parties, the only bipartisan issue. But to me, he also says something uh, even more interesting. Um, he uses this phrase, industrial policy. Now, I didn't put this in the thing I wrote, but that's significant because um, when Trump was doing his trade wars against China, one of the things that was in the articles was that they wanted China to stop their industrial policy. They're claiming they weren't operating uh, as, in as much as, a, say, free market type environment as the United States, and it was unfair they're doing this government spending, this industrial policy, and the tariffs are aimed to, to get them to stop. Um, and, and, and at least that was what one faction of the Trump administration wanted to do. Now here, uh, Sanger is saying we have industrial policy too. Um, so, so, so that's an interesting uh, turn of phrase to me for him to be using industrial policy. I, I call it the military industrial complex. That's what Eisenhower called it, but he's calling it industrial policy because that's, I guess, what the Trump people were yelling about China last year, but he basically says that um, bills such as the China bill, they amount to industrial policy, uh, a once contentious concept that is now barely debated thanks to the specter of Chinese competition. Um, and we can use uh, – we used to use battling China, Japan uh, in the same semiconductor industry as an excuse 30 years ago. But now we use China. So to me, uh, what I think is going on is that they're telling China we don't want a Cold War. We don't want a real war, but we need these increased – yeah, sure. We need these increased tensions uh, to keep the military-industrial complex going and keep feeding in or even grow it even more than it is. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting too because going back to what you said earlier, I mean uh, – you know, economic ties between the U.S. and the USSR did not exist at all after World War II is what you write. Um, in fact, they essentially blockaded each other. Uh, but that goes back to what you said. Like, they can't really 
uh, I mean, I don't think that's feasible between the U.S. and China today for them to blockade each other because the uh, economy is so uh, – I mean, China is integrated into the global economy. So, you know, in a lot of ways, our fates are tied. And how can you do a Cold War when that's the situation? Well, th- there's there's also another factor uh, too, and and it's not just the U.S. in in, in China. I mean, that's how, yeah, yeah, as Americans, that's how we all think. You know, U.S. China, U.S. this country, that country, but you know, uh, the rest of the world's integrating, uh, interacting with both of us too. So, the you know, in order to have a real trade block, uh, you got to get other countries on our side. And, and I don't think they want to do it um, for for example for for a good reason. For example, uh, you mentioned you know this last book I wrote was about Vietnam, and historically, uh, except for a period of time during the Vietnam War, but historically, Vietnam and was very wary of China, and uh, you know they they had been invaded by China you know hundreds of years ago, a couple of times. And then even after the Vietnam War, I think it was 1980, uh, China did a small incursion into Vietnam uh, and then left. Uh, they got defeated. But the point is they have an uneasy relationship uh, with China. And the United States, uh, when Obama was president, went, they sent the Secretary of Defense over there. And he tried to make an arms deal with Vietnam. And even tried to get the Vietnamese to make some sort of agreement to let the U.S. Navy go in the in one of their ports, and they didn't want anything to do with either one of those things. And then I think uh, I can't remember if, if it was again under Obama or, or early in Trump, but uh, the U.S. tried to go back again and get them to accept anti-ballistic missiles, um, like we got in Europe. Uh, that were aimed, you know, at the potential Russia threat, and they don't want that. They didn't want them either. And the and the, and the reason uh, the, there's a story in the Viet- that came out of the Vietnamese media saying they don't want these things because they don't want to escalate. You know, they don't want to get involved in an arms race, even if they are wary of China. So if countries like Vietnam don't want to do that, they certainly don't want to get into a trade block. You know, where they're not trading with China either. I think they, they don't, you know, they don't, I mean, they can be wary of China and still deal with them the way they are and get help if they need to, but not, you know, get caught up in a complete <laughs> us and them situation. I think what's really important here too to note is that we're in sort of a liminal sort of state when it comes to war and peace in the U.S. where I, I think the American public is past the whole war on terror thing. And now they've been sort of redirected uh, to fearing China. China has taken the place of jihadist terrorism as uh, the enemy within the popular American imagination. Um, and what's interesting to me about your article is that, you know, you have people that are really uh, dead set on uh tensions with China just in in the in the American public uh, that are afraid of China right which you know that can be beneficial to players on the political chessboard because you know uh, people that are scared as you point out are easier to control and sort of lead around uh, but then on the other hand of all this you have uh, 
a situation where, you know, a real Cold War, well, that's bad for business. But the tensions uh, could be good for business because you can, you know, scaremonger people into supporting your causes. And also uh, the military industrial complex uh, can keep going if you have this fear based on these tensions between the U.S. and China. Yeah, I, and I, th- I think the submarine program is, is the perfect example of this because this is going to be the Navy's top priority. That's what they're calling it. And the amount of money going into this is just astronomical. It takes – they want to build like 30 submarines, and it takes seven years to build a single one of them. And the, there's, they're going to budget $110 billion to do it. I mean, and of course, the budget will go up. That's just the way it works. But, um, I mean, this is their number one program. And what's the purpose of it? You know, you got to have an enemy. Um, and Russia doesn't have, you know, enough submarines to, I think, to justify it. So you got to conjure one up in Taiwan and, and China, I guess. Last uh, question. I know you don't really cover this in the article, but I, I guess my concern, I, I'm, I'm sort of leaning towards what you're saying about this current situation between the U.S. and China. At the same time, though, I guess my concern is always that the game that's currently being played feels like a very dangerous one, because even if you're playing at a Cold War while not wanting to be in a real Cold War, one false move can escalate things in ways that are potentially catastrophic, and I also don't think that nation-states always act rationally when an escalation happens do you think there's a threat that current tensions can evolve into something worse or at least something more unpredictable well i at this moment i think i'm not that worried but i do think if they start to i mean it's one thing to build these submarines for instance these are attack submarines meant to attack other submarines or, or you know uh, ocean-carrying vessels. Uh, but if they start building submarines armed with nuclear weapons um, or encourage Japan, let's say, to start building nuclear weapons, I would be very concerned of a nuclear arms race because uh, I think the lesson of the last Cold War is those are, can be extremely dangerous. And I believe, you know, if you get arms races um, – where one side feels like we have we have a window of opportunity and it'll go shut, you know, once the other side catches up with our weapons, that can lead to a dangerous. Uh, I mean, we had dangerous since you know the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, I believe the Vietnam War itself was a byproduct of of of, the, of this sort of thing too. But World War Two, you know, one could argue. Japan attacking Pearl Harbor, you know, they saw a window closing. So I think arms races of weapons is, can be very, very dangerous, but I don't know if we're headed to that yet, but it, it could, could go there. Yeah. And I only mention that because I, I think when I talk about these things with other people, with the way we're talking about it, I think some people get the wrong impression and, and think, oh, well, there, you know, what's the need for the anti-war movement uh, or, you know, things like antiwar.com if, if uh, you know, we're, we're not going to actually have a real war. And I don't think that in the long term, 
that's necessarily true. I think things can always evolve and get worse, and we should always be uh, aware of uh, potential catastrophic consequences due to increased tensions, even though I would say that we should also avoid um, alarmism in the immediate and the near-term future. Yeah, and, and when I speak of nuclear weapons, I mean, that's the worst-case scenario, right? But, I mean, you can just as easily, or more more likely, uh, you would have a proxy war in Africa, you know, where they're supporting one side in some country and we are another one. I mean, even even that even happened to the Soviets uh, in the 1970s. They, they in Kenya, oh, no, in Angola, uh, the Soviets and Cubans were on one side, we were on another, and something like that also happened in Ethiopia. So it, it, it can easily, something like that's probably very likely to happen, actually. Well, hey, Mike Swanson, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with the work you're doing at Wall Street Window? Oh, just go to wallstreetwindow.com. They'll see financial articles, and then I'll also do some you know, um, stuff on, on these topics, too. Um, and subscribe to the email list. Just click the subscribe button at the top, and get, in, uh, you get my top headlines of the day. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Professor Juan Cole and Mike Swanson of The Wall Street Window. As always, if you support the work here I'm doing at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Just posted a few videos of past Parallax Views programs exclusive to my Patreon supporters. I think you will enjoy those if you enjoy the program, and maybe you missed a few of the audio versions of those shows, so you can always watch the video version. If you're a $5 tier or above supporter of the program on Patreon. And of course, there's also the producer's credit shoutout for $10 tier and above supporters, so producer's credit shoutouts too. Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, well then consider supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. 
new forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.